We're continuing this uh, chapter three called This and That and Other Things, speaking about uh, conditionality. And um, that last reading was of the uh, process of dependent origination and dependent cessation. So we'll carry on uh, just from where we left off. This process of dependent origination, outlined so succinctly in this sutta, contains more than enough material within it for a book of its own. However, to remain focused on the topics at hand, we will simply present the text for your own investigation rather than pursuing detailed explanations here. Uh, and that was a very deliberate choice on the part of uh, Ajahn Pasna and myself when they were uh, sort of discussing about this, this book and uh, the degree to which we thought we should uh, go into uh, various different aspects and particularly this was one of these areas like, well, should we go into that in more detail or should we just leave it aside? So this was a particular uh, choice to not try and go into sort of exhaustive detail or explaining what all the different links mean and uh, definitions of terms and so on because uh, as I mentioned yesterday there's um, uh, quite a number of books uh, particularly the one by uh, Venerable Paiuto is really very uh, I say accessible and clear and uh, says everything that needs to be said really so we just decided to, to not try and make it exhaustive and real and sort of realize that people can go and check up other texts if, if they wish to rather than try to explain everything here because otherwise this would have turned into a 12 volume <laughs> uh, set so that we were trying to stay focused on the, the, the main theme of uh, Nibbana and uh, these sort of ultimate reality teachings so if it seems a little bit sketchy in terms of how dependent origination is, is uh, dealt with here then it's that's because it is sketchy <laughs> so it's quite a deliberate uh, uh, move, but uh, um, uh, I would uh, suggest that's a very good resource. I think we have it on the. Um, we have got hard copies in the library. Also, it's on the Dharma Vault, I believe. It's a f- it's a free distribution text that you can get from the um, uh, GeoCities websites that they have. For all, all of um, Tanjakun Payuto's English translations are, are there for free download. So, th- and I'm I'm pretty sure we've got them on the Dharma Vault already. So to continue. The subject of causality and the many ways that different things condition each other, as enumerated in the 24 categories of the Patana, conditional relations in the Abhidhamma Pitika, and as summarized above in that um, uh, that earlier reading, when there is this, there is that. um, uh, From the arising of this comes the arising of that, and so on. That uh, conditional relations refers to the different ways that aspects of the objective realm interact. By contemplating the dependent nature of all such phenomena, we are better able to appreciate their essentially empty nature and to relate to them with less confusion and attachment. And it just so happened, I didn't bring it along today, but um, I came across, uh, in my kuti I inherited quite a lot of literature from uh, Lumpur Sumato, and one of the things that I inherited was a... um, uh, a handmade um, set of notes on each of the 24 patanas with little pictures <laughs> and, uh, and uh, very sort of simple explanations. They're a little bit hokey and some of them are hard to understand. Uh, the uh, the uh, English was not the first language of the person who put it all together. But I, I thought uh, I could bring that along uh, tomorrow to, to share with the people if they, if they wish. Um, but the, if you look at the, the Abhidharma book in the, in the library um, called Conditional Relations, uh, it, uh, I can almost guarantee it'll start swimming before your eyes before you get to about paragraph three. <laughs> Unless you're an Abhidharma scholar, in which case it'll all be clear as clear. But it's a, um, anyway, that's a, I'll bring that along tomorrow and, um, and pass that around if people are interested. We'll now take a figurative step back from just viewing the interrelationship of various objects objects, and take a look at the relationship between all these objects and that which is experiencing them, the apparent subject. We often feel that there is a me in here that's experiencing a world out there, 
And we can even experience thoughts and feelings as part of the world that I am aware of. That's very commonly the experience of most people most of the time. However, one of the most profound and liberating insights of the Buddha was that the feeling of I-ness, ahankara, was just as much of a causally created construct as any other perceptual object. He saw that the solidity of the world of things and of the I, quote-unquote, that apparently experiences them, were both equally illusory, both void of substance. He saw that instead it was more accurate to speak in terms of an I, E-Y-E, but of wisdom, that is the true agent of awareness. And then there's a short quote from the... um, um, Majima Nikaya, um, uh, from the, um, one of the sections of questions and answers. Friend, uh, one understands a state that can be known with the eye of wisdom, Panya Chaku. So that's in a dialogue between uh, two people. It's not actually the Buddha speaking, but they said the, the question was, what is it that understands a cognizable object? And then the answer was, um, friend, one understands a state that can be known with the eye of wisdom, Panya Chaku. This insight leads us into a contemplation of the relationship of apparent subject and object, how the tension between the two generates the world of things and its experiencer, and more importantly, how, when that duality is seen through, the heart's liberation is the result. Probably the clearest and most often quoted of the Buddha's teachings on this is that given to a wanderer called Bahia Daruchirya, According to the scriptures, Bahia was a well-respected religious teacher who lived in northern India, somewhere on the sea coast. He was an ascetic of some spiritual accomplishment, and he assumed that he was a fully enlightened being. One night, a devata, who had been a relative of his in a former life, came to him and informed him that, no, you're not an arahant, and you're not on the way to becoming one either. (laughs) It's always good to have friends, isn't it? (laughs) let you know what you might not have noticed yourself. <laughs> like having a piece of uh, lettuce between your teeth. You know? <laughs> <coughs> no, you're uh, not on the way to becoming one either. Bahia was disturbed by this announcement and asked then if there were any genuine arahants in the world. He was told, yes indeed. And his celestial visitor described both the Buddha and where he was residing. Bahia, to his credit is said to have started the walk of several hundred miles then and there. So he was living on the, the coast of India and started sort of walking that night to try and get to, to Savati, where the Buddha was staying. Some days later, having reached the district capital of Savati, he encountered the Buddha and a group of his monks as they walked on their morning arms round through the narrow, dusty streets of the town. He strode right up and bowed before the Buddha, stopping him in his tracks and asked to receive teachings on the Dhamma. The Buddha pointed out that this was not a convenient time to teach him, as they were in the middle of collecting their alms food, and around them was all the surge and bustle of an Indian market town at the start of the day. However, Bahia was undeterred and responded by saying, Life is a very uncertain thing, Venerable Sir. It is unknown when either you or I might die. Please, therefore, teach me the Dhamma here and now. As often occurs in Buddhist scriptures, this exchange was repeated three times. Finally, both because the Buddha could see the truth of Bahia's assertion, he himself regularly used the fact of such uncertainty in encouraging a sense of urgency in his students, and because, when pressed up to the third time on any question, a Buddha has to respond. So that's one uh, uh, a uh, regularly stated comment when somebody... And the Buddha says, well, be careful. If you ask me three times, I'm going to have to answer. You might not like to hear what I've got to say. And so, and so then, um, uh, so the, uh, the, uh, the questioner, if they, they ask three times, then the Buddha is compelled to, to give them an answer. So then the Buddha relented and gave Bahia this brief but pithy teaching. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed, like a smelling, tasting, touching. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. When Bahia there is for you, in the scene, only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. 
Then by here, there is no you, quote-unquote, in connection with that. When by here, there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When by here, there is no you there, then by here, you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So this passage is a kind of poetic expression, and so there's been much debate over the centuries, millennia, of uh, the precise way to, to understand this or, or translate it. So I've got another slightly different translation that I have in this book, which is called uh, <coughs> Small Boat, Great Mountain. And so the, the island is a, um, a more sort of systematic uh, collection and ordering of many of the teachings that are in this book, which are just in, in Dhamma talks. This is talks that I gave on a, a uh, retreat that I was co-leading with a Tibetan Lama, Tsokni Rinpoche, and uh, <coughs> so it was suggested that, these, that those talks got put together in a, in a book. And so um, the, uh, the island is taking a lot of the same material and putting it into a more sort of thematic and, and orderly arrangement. But it, the, the two books cover a, a lot of the same material, but this is much more, this is more sort of Dhamma talk format and a bit more um, uh, sort of narrative. So anyway, the, uh, the translation of the Bahia Sutta that uh, uh, I included here is this. It's very similar, but there's a couple of small variations. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that, indeed, there is no thing here. This by here is how you should train yourself. Since by here there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the herd only the herd, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will therefore <coughs> see that you are neither... Sorry. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this, nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. So, um, if, you, um, if you sort of look at this and reflect on it and, and sort of sort through the, the teachings and um, sort through some of the, the Pali expressions, um, what it says to me and how, uh, and how I understand it and what... And, um, uh, what we have in, in, this, um, in this teaching is that when the mind reflects on um, there's just hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking um, then in, uh, there's a first of all there's this, there's this emptying uh, out of the self there's no me who's the hearer me who's the seer, me who's the thinker there's um, a letting go of of the, the sense of, of subject, but rather there's just hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. And then with the, so there's an emptying out of the, of the subject, and then <clears throat> with the emptying out of, of the subject, also then further reflecting on, the, on the, the flow of the sense objects, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, then there's, a, well, there's, there's no thing that's permanent or solid there either. So it's an emptying out of the object. So I can say, I see Ajahn Jitapala, convenient object. <laughs> so <coughs> I can say, well, there is, I, I look in this direction, I say, there's Ajahn Jitapala sitting there. But that's uh, a sense impression. That's eye consciousness taking shape in my brain. I close my eyes, Ajahn Jitapala vanishes. I open my eyes, she reappears. Just like that. <laughs> so it's a, it's a mental impression. And I look, and that mental impression is, is configured in such a way that when the mind receives that, knows that, then the name Ajahnjitapala comes to mind. So <clears throat> that uh, it's seeing that that is a construct, that is something that has no intrinsic, permanent, separate essence, but rather it's a, a, an, an, uh, an empty formation that the mind is aware of. So then there's an end, so this whole process is in, uh, with this kind of acute uh, awareness and clarity of, of vision. There's an emptying out of the subject and emptying out of the object. 
And then, <clears throat> and then as he says, when you see there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore, you, you cannot find yourself either in the world of the subject or in the world of the object, nor any place between the two. And that letting go of, of subject and object and seeing the empty nature of, uh, of them, as he says, this alone is the end of suffering. So that's the um, one way of reflecting on those, that particular teaching and how, how I understand it. One of the, the, the things that you find with, when the, the Pali expressions are, are not particularly clear or certain words are, can be translated in two or three or three or four different ways, um, they tend to arouse very um, dualistic notion, uh, emotions. <laughs> like, that's not what it says. <laughs> and uh, uh, for a very non-dualistic teaching, it creates, uh, has a, a strange chemistry of creating very dualistic, uh, judgmental emotions. And so that uh, it's a, a good example of, of not grasping of what sort of the, the real, real meaning is, but rather if you see several different translations, like you might find this in the, the Pali Tech Society edition or um, John Ireland has done a translation of the Udana, Ajahn Tanisro has his own translations. Um, and so that you can sort of put them together and, and then out of the different translations or your own uh, knowledge or study of Pali to get a sense of, uh, of how the, the things uh, work together. But uh, to me, that's, that's how the teaching is conveyed, as, of, uh, <coughs> so the letting go, not just of, of when we think in terms of things being empty, let's say that the clock is, this is just a coming together of parts, and there's no essential clockness there. It just comes together, we call it clock, or glass, or call today Sunday. You know, it's, but it's also the emptying out of the subject that there is. We, we call ourselves a person. I'm experiencing. I feel. I think. I am Ajahn Amaro. But it's also pointing out how that that uh, I feeling the the I the doer I the experience here is a a construct as well. So it's kind of interesting. Also, many years ago, um, <coughs> well, Ajahn Vira, um, in the early days of Chithurst. So this is about. Um, Nearly 40 years ago, Ajahn Viradhamma was giving a, a Dhamma talk on this, uh, in quoting this sutta, and, um, and he, just, he just quoted the first couple of lines, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd. And one of the Anagarikas heard it as saying, in the scene, as in S-C-E-N-E, -E, in the scene, like this kind of Dhamma scene, there's only the scene, it's just this kind of Chithurst scene, that's, it's, it's just this. Here, you know, this is the Ajahn Sumedho scene. And the herd was H-E-R-D, like as in the herd of cows. Or like, yeah. In the scene, like, yeah, you've got the kind of Dharma scene is the real thing, and then the herd is like the vulgar herd, the, kind of, <laughs> just the, the crowd of Petuginas who are just sort of wasting their life in foolish ways. And so you had this whole sort of rewriting of, of what the Dharma talk was about. In the scene, there's only the scene. In the herd, there's just the herd. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, interesting how the mind sort of joins up the dots in various different ways to create our own meaning. It's like when the light is very dim and you think, you know, you know, is that a, is that a venerable indipanyo? No, it's a radiator. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a bush, it's a bush. Yeah. So that you, you're kind of, the eye is trying to piece together an image from the, the bits and pieces that it gathers. So sometimes studying the suttas can, can be that way. But uh, this is my, my understanding of it. And also the, um, <coughs> You know, reflecting on that as a teaching and as a, as a practice, that sense of when the mind is is really uh, alert to just the patterns of sense experience, just hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, then there is that emptying of of a of a sense of, a, of an experiencer or a, a, a real thing that is that is out there that is being experienced. So just to to finish this little bit about by here. But he realized full enlightenment, even as he heard these few words of the teaching. Kneeling in the dust and clamor of Savati that morning. And furthermore, true to his own sense of the fragile nature of existence, moments later he was impaled by a runaway cow. So he was knocked down by a runaway cow and <laughs> skewered by the cow's horns, and he died on the street in Savati. So he was right. Life is uncertain. Uh, it was customary uh, of the Buddha to honor those of his disciples who excelled in particular ways. 
Uh, for example, Sariputta was declared by him to be the keenest in wisdom, Dhammadina as the nun most skilled in expanding on the Dhamma, and to Bahia he posthumously accorded the honor of being the one to gain the swiftest full understanding of his teaching. So even the Buddha gave prizes. <laughs> so uh, Bahia got the posthumous, the after-death award for the one who understood the teaching um, most, uh, most quickly because he, he became an arahant just hearing this, this very short um, expression. Um, <clears throat> so that, that uh, is one of the more colourful tales uh, uh, in, the, in this, the scriptures but also it's a very uh, powerful teaching to, to reflect upon and, uh, and say, brings forth a, um, a different way of relating to the the sense world, and also that kind of emptying of subject and object is very much what uh, insight meditation is, is geared to, to be doing, to, um, say, clarifying and strengthening the quality of, of wisdom and, uh, and mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya, so that then uh, that eye of wisdom, the panya chaku, can, can genuinely see the, the, the empty and selfless nature of, of all experience. Before I carry on, any questions, thoughts, reflections? In the herd, there is only the herd. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, I, I still, I think I have uh, recorded already one. Um, knowing, kind of, knowing about this teaching, and I was going for a walk. And came back to one of the fields where they had cows. And fine, you know, the cows never do anything. You go to them and hold your hand, and they lick over your hand, so they don't seem to be dangerous. And so I trusted that I can just cross the field. And uh, when I was halfway through the, across the field, there was a big field. Um, I saw there was a bull, unusually, and he started to round me up. So I was in the middle of the field, I couldn't go anywhere. I saw this bull going in a kind of half circle and then we stood face to face. And I think, right. <laughs> 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 very good, very good. Uh, so I, I looked at this boy and he would kind of go. Then he started going backwards a few steps. And then he started throwing up bits of grass. And then he started to charge. And I'm, I go up in the countryside mm -hmm. partly and Basically, I thought I'm not afraid, you know. So I do what I do is I, I went towards the whole, 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 expecting he would back off. And he, he stopped. <coughs> and looked at When they go down, when they said, don't see you. Mm -hmm. So when I said, oh, oh, he needed to kind of reassure himself what, who was there or what was there. So again, he, he went a few steps back for our class, and so again I stood there and went to step towards him and said, "No!" And then then I realized there is this uh, some instinct of survival in me. I mean, I don't know whether but he had that. Or not. <laughs> I had that, <laughs> or me, or whatever it is. Uh, so there was this kind of. I have to do something. And so I went up with the snow. And again, and then I, I made funny sounds, just noticing that he was confused. I made <laughs> that he had to look again. And so he looked again, and then time vanished in a way. So then I just saw every detail of this bull's head, you know, the, 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 the curly hair here, and beautiful, I mean, in <laughs> that moment there was no fear, it was just mm -hmm. this bull's face, 
But again, he swore up grass and started to charge. And then I, re I realized I ran out of options what to do. And then I, I kind of surrendered. But then just the momentum of whatever the survival instinct was, I, I still went forward. And I thought I said something like a no, but it didn't come out as a word. It just came out like a metallic sound, which was surprising me, but also surprising the boy. So he stopped again in his tracks, but this time he didn't move at all. So take yourself out here. And so I, I just tiptoed out uh, half for the field and only looked back when I was over the stile. And he was still standing there. So <laughs> and so I realized, right, I saved my life. Maybe <laughs> if I wouldn't have had that feeling of me, I would. I, maybe now I saved my life, but I missed the opportunity to get in life. <laughs> <laughs> I think you. I think you did the right thing. <laughs> Very good. I think that's extremely wise. Satu, Satu. But he was already an arahant before he got hit by the cow. It wasn't because he got hit by the cow. He was already an arahant, and then the, he asked to become a, a, a monk with the Buddha, and the Buddha said, "Well, do you?" He was a um, a bark-wearing ascetic. He wore tree bark. His his robes were. And there's an interesting uh, sister Tisara's not here today, but she passed on a, um, a while ago. She passed on this interesting article about. This theory about the 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 background of, of Bahia and also the uh, um, Brihad Aranika Upanishad, which was um, uh, that uh, there's a relationship between that the the teachings in that Upanishad and in the Bahia Sutta, and it sounds like he was a um, a bark wearing ascetic, and that some of the the expressions that the Buddha uses in this is the kind of um, teachings that were, were were used by those particular ascetics. That, uh, isn't it one of those interesting little academic articles that you think, oh, well, that makes sense, and it it quotes from that Upanishad, and um, and it kind of matches up with some of the expressions of the Buddha. So the Buddha seeing, oh, he's a bark wearing, he's like someone who wears a, a yogi who wears tree bark. So, and he he used some of the expressions and forms that the, the guy would have been familiar with to sort of to reach him and to to speak to something that that would be. Uh, um, Meaningful. So I'll ask Sister Tisara, as I, I, I made a note of the reference, but I don't have an actual copy of it myself. <coughs> so thank you. I'm very glad you had that wisdom, Ajahn, so that you're still with us. <laughs> the, the bull might st still be standing in the field thinking, these two leggeds are really crazy. <laughs> what was she up to? <laughs> I went actually to the farmer, the farmer menstruated afterwards, and said, you know, you have to take this bull off the field, it's dangerous, it's the one with the walking path. Oh, yeah. And he said, oh, is he again there? It's <laughs> one of the neighbors who, who is after his cows and breaks through the hedges. Oh, really? Yeah. Obviously was highly aroused, so the, the king of the herd had to protect him. Oh. So, Oh, thank you. You double service. You kept yourself alive and you helped the farmers to keep their animals under control. <laughs> anyway, so I don't want to make you afraid of crossing the field. He's not there. Very good. Very good. There was a uh, many years ago when I was uh, at. Uh, <coughs> At Chithurst with uh, Ajahn Sajita, myself, and, and uh, Ajahn Tanavra, we were walking on the arms round and we were crossing this field. And there was this sort of, uh, a small herd of, of bullocks, the kind of young males, and they were sort of jumping around and being a bit, a bit kind of lively. And uh, it was kind of cruel of Ajahn Sajita because he knew that uh, Tanavra was a bit afraid of, of uh, cows. And <laughs> So we're about halfway across the field, and in a stage whisper, he turns to me and says, They always go for the small ones at the back. 
<laughs> so that, that was a bit cruel on Ajahn's Ajit, but it was kind of funny as well. Poor Tanabros. <laughs> but he knew that his, his brothers would protect him. But, uh, it was a bit mean. Anyway, to move on from the cows. This instruction to Bahia bears a close relation to the Kalakarama Sutta, uh, which is in the Anguttara Book of the Fours, and is well worth contemplating in connection with that teaching. So we'll get to that later, but I will read it out now because it's a really wonderful sutta. So this is a, um, there's a book by Bhikkhu Nyanananda called The Magic of the Mind, which is a really excellent little, um, uh, it's not a thick book, it's a, a, a sort of extended essay, Magic of the Mind, that was published by uh, Buddhist Publication Society quite a number of years ago. And it's uh, Bhikkhu Nyanananda's commentary uh, on this Kalakarama Sutta. And uh, he's a really wonderful um, writer and a very accomplished monk, so I, I recommend it. And anyway, in this, this particular sutta, there's this um, one particular passage where the Buddha's speaking about the process of perceptions. Thus, bhikkhus, the Tathagata does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight. <coughs> he does not conceive of an unseen, like that uh, even if you, uh, you aren't seeing it, that the, the thing is actually there even if you're, if you're not seeing it. He does not conceive of an unseen. He does not conceive of a thing to be seen. He does not conceive about a seer. He does not conceive of an audible, a uh, thing to be sensed, a cognizable thing apart from cognition. He does not conceive of an uncognized. He does not conceive of a thing worth cognizing. He does not conceive about one who cognizes. Thus, because the Tathagata being such like, that's Tadi in Pali, in regard to, to all phenomena seen, heard, sensed and cognized is thus, tata. Moreover, there is none other greater or, or more excellent than one who is thus, I declare. Whatever's seen, heard, sensed or clung to is known as truth by other folk. Amidst those who are entrenched in views, one thus holds none as true or false. The barb which hooks impales the world has been discerned well in advance. I know, I see, this is the truth. The targeters do not cling thus. <clears throat> so we'll get to that, that sutta again later on in the chapter on Atamayata, but um, it's, uh, um, in a way it spells it out in, in a little bit more detail than the Bahia Sutta when he says, um, you'll see there's no thing here or no thing there. The targeter does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight, so that in the scene there is only the scene. In the, he does not conceive of an unseen, so that um, <coughs> we, uh, we create the world through our conditioning. And according to the... Uh, there's not, it's not to say there isn't a basis on which our perceptions are formed. There is, you can say there is a, a quality of the four great elements that, <laughs> that exist that form the basis of this perception that I call clock. It's not saying that everything is a dream or is totally invented by our mind, but... Uh, but what, because of experiencing things from the human scale and uh, having the conditioning of the English language, then when light comes from the, this object and enters this eye, then the brain says clock. But <clears throat> to say that there, there is a thing, a permanent, separate, independent thing that is there uh, apart from that seeing is presumptuous, is a, a conceiving, that the clock is being conceived as a clock. If you look at it from the subatomic level, it's just quarks and, and uh, you know, vibrating energy. <clears throat> and uh, so you know, what, what's, what is the real scale, the human scale or the subatomic scale or the universal scale? You know, what, what's, the, the, what's the real viewpoint? There isn't, a, there isn't a fixed viewpoint. You can't say that the human scale is the real one, and if you look at it at the level of, of, of electrons and protons and neutrons or quarks or whatever, that, um, that um, so at the level of quarks and electrons and neutrons and protons, then clockness doesn't really apply. It's a, but then at this human level, and in the subject of this, this dialogue, then you say, clock. <laughs> if you're looking at the planet Earth is a pale blue dot. 
somewhere in the in the Milky Way that's sort of barely discernible, this would not really feature on the screen very much. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, this I have this picture on my computer screen of uh, it's a, a, a picture of Saturn from the taken from the the Cassini orbiter from the far side of Saturn. So you're looking. Uh, uh, you're looking. Saturn is filling the, the middle of the screen, and you've got Saturn's rings around it. And there's this tiny little pale blue dot off on the left-hand side. That's Earth. <laughs> it's a little kind of barely discernible blob, and that's us. <laughs> hmm? All of us. Everything. The whole. That's that little kind of. So, um, uh, the the mind. Yeah, creates its own version of the world. And we call each other, we say, Ajahn Ahinsko, Indipanyo, Ajahn Jitapala, Sister Kemika, the carpet, the clock, the microphone. We designate these things into existence. They don't have, a, uh, they don't have an existence on their, from their own side. The mind creates it. So that if there's no people here, this isn't clock. There's something there. <laughs> The reality still persists, but you need a human to come along and look at it and say, clock. If you were a fly looking for something to eat, <laughs> you would see that and go, oh, look, lunch. There's a bit of something on the top there. Smells good. If you were a clock manufacturer, you say, oh, yeah, that's one of our, oh, 98 models. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, not to go into too much, uh, too much detail, but <clears throat> we're in this kind of, uh, process has been talked about in this Bahia Sutta and this Kalakarama Sutta. It's talking about when there's that wisdom. It says the Tathagata does not conceive, like the Tathagata being the Buddha, but also there is a, a way of talking about the awake mind, the, the mind which is awake and aware. It does not conceive of a, of a visible thing apart from sight. It does not conceive of an unseen. So there is a thing there that's not being seen. It does not conceive of a thing to be seen does not conceive about a seer, so from the subject side, does not conceive of an audible and through the other sense objects. And this, uh, uh, this uh, teaching, again, though it's very short, it says, tradition has it that 500 of those listening to this Dhamma talk attained arahardship, and there were five earthquakes during the course of this exposition. It must have been very short ones. <laughs> it's not a very long sutta. But there were five earthquakes that took, uh, took place during that, that Dhamma talk. And this short teaching also became of great significance in the centuries after the Buddha's time. It was used by the elder Maharakita under the auspices of King Asoka's missionary endeavors to instruct the Yonikas, the Greeks, in their home country. So this was used by the um, missionaries sent out by Emperor uh, uh, Asoka from India to go and teach the Greeks philosophy. So this is the, like his uh, sort of main, uh, main, main theme for that uh, particular elder, Maharikita. So then, <coughs> in addition to this discourse to Bahia, particularly in its references to non-locality, that means things not being fixable in space, uh, is comparable to the uh, Udana, uh, Sutta number 1 in the chapter 8, which is, um, this is the, um, uh, the one I was quoting this morning in the, the reflection in the temple. So this is uh, uh, amongst Lumpur Sumato's favorite teachings. This is uh, uh, the, um, um, the eighth chapter of the Udana. The Udana is the inspired utterances of the Buddha, and it's called Patali Village. So it's a series of talks that the Buddha gave about Nibbana and ultimate reality near this village called Patali. And this is the first one, the first sutra in that, um, in that chapter. There is that sphere, that ayatana, where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind. No sphere of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. 
There, there is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This sphere I call neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution and no support. This, just this, is the end of Dukkha. As I was saying this morning, that, that, uh, uh, that teaching is one of the bases um, that uh, would have inspired Lumpur Chai in his, um, his question, if you can't go forward and you can't go back and you can't stand still, where do you go? So this speaking about this uh, dimension of, of being, this ayatana, um, where he says there's neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a, reappe- nor a reappearance. So non-locality means like not uh, not fixed in space. And again, as I was saying this morning during the morning reflection, uh, it's only to, uh, it's only um, material form rupa that that has a relationship to three-dimensional space. Mind doesn't have a relationship to to uh, to uh, to space. You can say, well, my mind is here. You might sort of touch your head. Well, my mind is here. But but when when it's reflected upon. The, the whole nature of location of, of the mind is that well where is the mind the mind is totally non-material so where does it begin and end where does it stop where in the, as as it's reflected on there's the realization that where doesn't really apply in terms of mind only in terms of matter awareness uh, three-dimensional space applies in terms of the world of material form but it doesn't really apply in terms of mind So, um, so it's comparable to that uh, that verse passage from the Udana, and it also has resonances with the brief comment made by Ajahn Mahabur, included uh, also in chapter nine. And this is a comment that in um, Ajahn Mahabur's book called Straight from the Heart, where he says, and this was an insight that came to him while he was doing walking meditation, uh, that led to his own uh, realization of arahantship. It was after uh, Ajahn Man had passed away. And this, this thought arrived in, arrived in his mind as he was doing walking meditation. And the thought was, if there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. If there is a point or a center of the knower, that subjective knowing, anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. That's to say the seed of, of birth comes from, I'm experiencing things here, this this is the center of, of experience, that sort of quality of here-ness, then that leads into the, the, the mind being born into particular perceptions and thoughts and uh, identities. This abandonment of subject-object dualities is largely contingent upon the correct apprehension of the perceptual process. And thus the breaking down of the apparent inside-outside dichotomy of the observer and the observed. And then this next passage comes from the Itiwutaka. A bhikkhu should so investigate that, as he investigates, his consciousness is not distracted and diffused externally, and internally is not fixed. And by not grasping anything, he should remain undisturbed. If his consciousness is undisturbed, then there is no coming into existence of birth, aging, death, and suffering. This passage is comparable to one spoken in reference to the nun Jatila Bhagika uh, in the Anguttara Book of the Nines. It is also reminiscent of the following commentary on a sutra of the northern Buddhist tradition given by a contemporary meditation master and scholar. So this is a passage from Master Shunhua's commentary on the Sixth Patriarch's Dharma Jewel Platform Sutra. So this is Master Hua speaking. Using your inherent wisdom, observe inwardly the mind and body and outwardly the world. Completely understand both, as you would look through a pane of glass, from the outside seeing in and from the inside seeing out. Inwardly, there is no body and mind, and outwardly, there is no world. But although there is no body nor mind nor world, the body and mind and the world function in accord with one another. Although they, although they function together, they are not attached to one another. This is called recognizing your own original mind. The original self-nature, the true mind, 
clearly penetrates within and without. The recognition of your sorry, the recognition of your original mind is liberation. When you are not attached to sense objects or false thought, you obtain liberation. A spectacularly thorough analysis of the, of the perceptual process and the inability to find oneself anywhere within it, as demonstrated in the brief teaching to Bahia, is to be found in the Shurangama Sutra, a key text on meditation for the Chan school of China. This passage revolves around the Buddha pressing Ananda, his closest disciple and ever watchful attendant, to describe exactly where his mind is. So this, uh, this is from the Shurangama Sutra, which, as I said, is the one of the main meditation texts you have in the Chan school. And uh, prior to this, in the Shurangama Sutra, Ananda has got seriously distracted while he's out on his arms round. And uh, <clears throat> so that the... And uh, having, been, having been sort of caught up and distracted. And so then the, the, uh, the Buddha begins this dialogue with Ananda and uh, in, in essence asks himself, well, where is your mind, Ananda? And the passage reads, <clears throat> It is the fault of your mind and eyes that you flow and turn. I'm now asking you specifically about your mind and eyes. Where are they now? So, Ananda, where is your mind? So um, that's uh, the uh, essential question. So that's at the, in the early part of the um, Shurangama Sutra. I just looked it up um, today. It's in the edition I have it uh, marked here. It's at um, chapter 1, section 169. And in the more recent edition, it's at section 172. Then... For the next um, many, 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 many paragraphs, up until, what was it, 250-something. <laughs> Let's see. From paragraph 172 all the way to paragraph 251, then the Buddha has this dialogue with Ananda, uh, going back and forth. And the Buddha grilling Ananda, like, where is your mind? <laughs> and, uh, and Ananda coming out with different answers, and the Buddha saying, well, if that was the case, then... No, he can't, that can't be true because... And so Ananda, um, as he says, that the investigation is scrupulous in the extreme, with the trusty Ananda repeatedly being confounded by the Buddha's wisdom, as he regularly was. Every nuance of object, sense organ and sense consciousness, every possible dimension of subject and object, are explored and demonstrated to be no abiding place for an independent identity. At its conclusion, the analysis arrives at the same conclusion as the teaching to Bahia. Any clinging whatsoever to this, that, here, there, subject, object, inside, outside, or anything in between is synonymous with dukkha. Abandon such clinging and dukkha necessarily ceases. So I, I leave that to you to, to search out for yourselves. Um, there's copies of the Shurangama Sutra in the, in the uh, library. It's in the, in the first volume. But uh, in the true Northern Buddhist tradition there, they do everything sort of plus, plus, plus. So the Pali is fairly succinct. Uh, the brief teaching to Bahia, you get um, <coughs> about 20 pages of uh, Ananda being cross-examined by the Buddha. And, uh, 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 but it's uh, the, the same basic theme, and I feel it's, uh, you know, even though it's a very, very thorough analysis, uh, it's, uh, it's the most helpful thing is that sense of trying to find me but where's the me? Where's the me who's the experiencer? Is it in the eyes, in the eye consciousness? Is it in the what? It's in the uh, in the object, between the object and the and the eye, and uh, nothing, there's uh, any attempt to try and find the the experiencer uh, falls flat. But then the Buddha keeps pointing. But there is but there is experiencing. You're you're aware. You're you're knowing that your your mind is your mind is right. And so that it's, uh, in a way, it, it mirrors the process of, uh, of investigation in uh, insight practice in vipassana, where that you see the mind trying to attach to a thought or to a, or, uh, to a, a, a physical sensation or a sound that we hear, or um, <coughs> even attaching to the idea of being the watcher, like, you know, I'm watching my mind, you know, the, the sense of I the watcher, I, I, the, I the meditator. And it's uh, it's this process of bringing the quality of wisdom uh, more uh, more and more and more to the the, the is, as you um, refine that to uh, the uh, a clarity and an openness and a and a, a lack of of um, 
the uh, say uh, grasping of any kind of, uh, of uh, identity. There's knowing, but not a, 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 a an I or a me or a mine, a, 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 an owner of the experience or a doer of the of the action, or a uh, a receiver of the of the perceptions. But there is perceiving, <laughs> and the, that uh, process of of insight is is a uh, Gets more and more subtle, and and uh, this is helping the the mind to recognize what we call the I making, ahankara, the making of the I am. Ahang means I am, kara means to make. So I making and mamankara, mine, mama, mama is mine. So that feeling of ownership is seeing how that I making and mind making gets constructed, and that and the fact that it is a constructed thing that the as I, I said earlier on, that the the insight of the Buddha that um, uh, <coughs> the um, that feeling of I-ness is just as much of a causally created construct as any other perceptual object. So the feeling of I is not I. The feeling of self is not self. <laughs> the, the feeling of me is is not me, and that. Uh, it's a, 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 a say the essence of the work of, of insight meditation is to, in a sense, train the, the awareness to stay at the back wall of experience, as it were, like staying on the island, <laughs> the, the island that you can't go beyond, is that 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 back wall of, of awareness. And as soon as the mind says, "Ah, I am the awareness," that's what I am. It's, it's created the thought, "I am the awareness," and it's grabbed the thought. <laughs> That's what I am. <laughs> it's left the back wall of awareness, and it's got born into that uh, a, a conceiving. This, this conceived. This. Oh, I am the awareness. That's what I am. I, I am. I am the Dhamma which is awake. That's what I am. And then it's just taken a thought and been born into that thought. And in that moment, that which is aware of the I am the Dhamma that's awake. That which knows that is what's awake, <laughs> aware. But the the habit is to keep. So, as it were, leaving that back wall and getting born into the different um, nuances of the um, of eye making and mind making. So, uh, at the end of that, just for your information, at the end of that long dialogue in the Shurangama Sutra, <coughs> when poor Ananda says, If it's not my mind, what is it? This is at the end of the dialogue. Uh, and then the Buddha says, it is your perception of false appearances based on external objects which deludes your true nature. So the, the habit of um, perceiving false appearances based on external objects. And then he uses this as a, an expression they use quite regularly in the, the northern Buddhist teachings. Um, uh, you're recognizing a thief as your son. Like, so that you, you've been... Uh, you've taken somebody into your household and you, you, you believe that this kid is your son, but actually it's a burglar, it's a thief who's, who's masquerading as your child and is there to, to rob you. And so that you're... Uh, and it's a, like an imagery of, like, say you're taking the... This is really a book, or you know, this is really me who's speaking. I, I am this person, these words are mine. And that's like a... The, the the thief is the the eye who's masquerading as as um, true reality, and so that they they use that kind of um, imagery of someone who's uh, pretending or one's taking a hold of a, a false perception. So that's the end of that chapter. Any yes, Evgenia. Also, feeling like others, and you can uh, see the feeling. And uh, when it's mixed with some other perception, like uh, you can see it clearly, like you, I, I have a perception of seeing, of touching, or something. And if you mix this feeling of me with this perception, it's kind of deluded mind. It's like you create such a logic. And if you just, uh, uh, if perception is just happening and uh, uh, there is no me added, like for example, sorry, quickly or something like, 
Uh, Say that last bit again. Yeah. Uh, if, if perception uh, just happens, like it's it's, it's not uh, should be like out of practice or sometimes just uh, perception. Uh, and if there is no uh, this feeling of me edit, it's kind of clear uh, perception how, how it is. So uh, it, it it's kind of right or uh, how how it is like. Uh, Really is so uh, identification is when we uh, kind of edit this feeling of I so it's, it's kind of uh, separate perception one of others and when we uh, like we can add it to other perceptions or we can just see when it uh, appears something like this. Yes, it's, uh, that's uh, that's how I I recognize it. Um, the mind adds on the those feelings of I and self and other, and uh, the more that that process is recognised and uh, becomes familiar, uh, the seeing the I, the I, me, and mine, uh, how, how that gets created and recognising it just as another object, then it's like you've recognised the thief. You know, <laughs> this isn't my child. This is a this is a, an imposter. Oh, that's that's just uh, that's not really mine. It's not really what I am. It's not really me. It's not really you know that other person. Then there's a, a spaciousness, a lightness, and so then uh, what uh, what's important then is as that gets recognised, what guides action and response to the present situation. Like, say you ask a question, then I respond. So then. What guides action is mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya, which is which is also not self. So, but that's the, when the mind is is attuned to the the present moment, then it responds uh, based on what's appropriate and, and useful for the for the the, the the time, the place, the situation. <coughs> in in terms of recognizing that eye making and mind making. There's, there's different kinds of approach you can use, like in the, the classical approach of uh, say insight meditation where the, you're just reflecting on, oh, this, this sound doesn't have an owner, you know, is it me or is it mine? The, uh, who, who's, the, who's experiencing this meditation? Does that, does this fee, is this feeling in my, my knee? Does this, is this who and what I am? So you can approach it in those kind of ways, exploring to develop that that sense of anatta, but also a, a kind of practice that, that Lumpur Sumedha would often um, encourage, which I found really helpful, is to do the opposite, which is to to very deliberately claim things like, I I am this pain, this this is this is mine. I am the owner. This this thought is completely mine. I'm the sole owner. This is my property. This thought, uh, you know, uh, I created this emotion and it's mine. So that you you take a, a, that, a, that kind of impression or that attitude and you inflate it. You you kind of make it stronger, and then it's a brilliant method, really, because it's quite simple. But it has that effect of as soon as you inflate it, make it stronger, it becomes ridiculous. It's like it loses its strength because you're. You're sort of you're turning the lights up, and you're seeing it more clearly. That because uh, that that kind of attitude, or this is my thought, or this uh, I'm I'm feeling worried, I'm upset, or I'm <coughs> you know I'm I'm annoyed, or I'm excited. It's believable because it's sort of off at the edges, and you can't really see it. And it's got its influence, but if you get it front center, you go, "What are you doing? Why are you wiggling your fingers? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing that for?" It's like. So that it's when you, you inflate it, you, you kind of make it stronger, uh, <coughs> then it loses its power because it's, it's, it's clearly visible. When you say, this is my feeling, I own it, it belongs to me, then the, the, you don't do it out loud, otherwise the temple will get very noisy. <laughs> <laughs> you can, if you're in your own room, you can say that loud. Or off in the woods, but uh, crossing the field with the cows. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> if you just s- sort of strengthen that, it makes it clear what the mind is doing. See? 
Yeah, I am. Pra- I am practicing. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> and then it just it becomes ridiculous. It sort of it loses its strength. It falls apart. So uh, another interesting practice to to do to get a a, a, uh, a clearer sense of that eye making and mind making is just to meditate on your name, your own name. Not no story. And it's it, I, it's a very strange practice. So be prepared. You need a little good cushion. But all you do, it's very, it's very simple. When your mind is as quiet as possible, you just say your name to yourself. Evgenia. That's the correct pronunciation. Something like that. So you just say your name to yourself. Amaro. And in the quietness of the mind, with nothing else going on, your own name starts to sound really peculiar. Evgenia. Something in the heart goes, what the heck is that? <laughs> well, the Russian version of that. Chitta pala. Ahimsa. Ko? Ah, 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 him. Ah, him. Sako? Huh? What? <laughs> it just because we use our name all the time. It's just again. It's like uh, it's sort of who we are. It's, it's my name, and it's and it's around, and it gathers that feeling of I-ness and meanness to it, and it's something that's automatic. And then you you gather it up and put it in the center, and and then look at it and think, well, what is that referring to? Okay, there's this sound or this this word. What is the thing here that that sound is referring to? Oh. <laughs> Whereas when it's sort of in the background, or just sort of in the context of, uh, okay, who's on the washing up today? Oh, yeah, Virginia. And then it just sort of it slides by, but when you, you sort of put it front center, then it's, it's really um, illuminating because it just. That just something that's so familiar, your own name. It's, it's something in the heart recognizes. Well, this hasn't actually got a form of any kind. Like what? What's what's this thing here? What's this here that that word is supposed to be referring to? Oh, <laughs> and that that's the. It's a strange kind of an insight, but it's a very helpful insight. <coughs> Because at that moment, the, the normal sort of habits of self-view just fall apart. They're, they're, they're challenged. It's like the camera being turned back onto the photographer. Like, Ooh. You know, I'm supposed to be the photographer. You know. <laughs> but suddenly the, the camera's on you. And uh, there's that kind of um, unsettling quality is really very, very useful. Because at that moment, self-view has just been unplugged. Even if it's just for half a second, just very, very briefly, that's something that you can really trust. Say, oh, this, this mind has no form. It's not a human. It's not a woman or a man or old. It doesn't have an age or a shape or anything. (laughs) Form doesn't apply to this experiencing. Ooh. And it's not, not even that the thinking is having to spell that out. It's like it's it's there in that in that moment of, of clarity. So even though it's a bit like you know, <laughs> can be a bit like losing your standing on the on the deck of a boat while the boat's sort of moving around, it can be a bit disorienting. It's a useful kind of disorienting. So it's like letting go of the usual props, and to to let the mind know that oh. This mind is not a person. <laughs> it knows the personing, <laughs> being a woman, being a man, being a monk, being a nun, being old, being young. It, it, it knows those characteristics, but it, but it isn't those itself. And just to be able to taste that and to, to know that directly, to let that operate directly, just even for like a second, half a second, it puts the rest 
that sort of performing as a person it puts the rest of it into a context you can put on the Evgenia mask and the, word, the English word person comes from the Latin word persona which literally means a mask a thing that, you, that we hide behind so it's a, right there in the English word there's a clue that this is a performance this being this person it's like putting on this mask is a, is a performance so then when you know that then what, uh, what uh, that helps us to do is in that, like, that the, um, the guidance for, for action and speech comes from mindfulness and wisdom comes from the, the, <coughs> the attunement of the, of the heart to the, to the present situation rather than habits of self-view and self-centered um, and kind of e- ego-centered uh, um, perspectives and, and habits. Craving not arising, uh, well, if if craving arises, then it's it can be. It depends on the, the conditioning of the. But if it arises, then <coughs> then the, that if the mindfulness and wisdom is very strong, it's like then the the. Uh, <coughs> The, some sort of desire arises, and and then it, the mind, the wisdom mind says, "Well, is somebody is there somebody here to get something? <laughs> yeah, who, who's if that's got who, who is the who's the person that's going to get it? Is anything really gettable? So it doesn't mean to say you stop eating or breathing or you know, you know you, when it, when it's pouring with rain, you you know get your umbrella out. <laughs> it doesn't make us stupid." But rather, it uh, when there's a, 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 a self-centered desire, it's recognized for what it is. Like, well, I want. Like, well, <laughs> who's there? To, who's there? It's like immediately met with, well, who's there to get anything, and who could own it anyway? And uh, and also that it's uh, automatic. Well, that 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 might be pleasing for a moment, but that that's that can only be for a moment. Anyway. Ah, time has slipped by once again. So let's uh, wind up for today. So that was the end of chapter three.